Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. -day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, is a rising wave of Latino political power in Massachusetts finally representative of the local population? Plus, Puerto Rico is still without power and water more than two weeks after Hurricane Fiona, frustrating Puerto Ricans still not fully recovered from the devastation of Hurricane Maria five years ago. And our guests are learning to embrace Hispanic Heritage Month. That and more on our Latinx Roundtable. Later in the show, vignettes from the life of a Mexican-American writer whose tears frame the story of her life. My depression always made happiness a fickle and fleeting son of a bitch. It didn't have a name or shape then, was something I couldn't understand or articulate, a container for my grief. All I knew was that there was a sadness that hovered over me like a sticky cloud, made it hard to live. Crying in the Bathroom is poet-author Erica Sanchez's memoir, essays of her brutally frank observations about mental illness, identity, and art. It's our October selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. But first, joining me now, Julio Ricardo Varela, president of Futuro Media Group, co-host of the In the Thick podcast, founder of Latino Rebels, and MSNBC opinion columnist. Welcome back, Julio. Hey, Callie. <laughs> Also with me, Marcella Garcia, an opinion columnist and associate editor at the Boston Globe. Hello, Marcella. Hi, Golly. Thank you for having me. Oh, the old gang is back together again. I'm so We're back. To have, to have both of you together. Let's jump right in and talk about this. Uh, looks like more than rumors of political power. Um, big, huge changes in the in the primaries, in the Massachusetts primaries. There are some Latino candidates that still face some opponents in November. But overall, this is a, a big leap up. Um, and um, I say it. It says that this is this is now political power evidencing itself. Uh, what say you, Marcella? Yeah, I mean it's um it's it's been overdue, obviously, but a big reason why we saw a big jump in Latinos getting elected this year to the state house was because of a, the redistricting process that happens every ten years as a result of the new census numbers that we get, right? And this time around, um, the people in charge of the redistricting process were very intentional in creating minority majority district. And they created three new Hispanic majority districts. So lo and behold, who gets elected in these new Hispanic majority districts? Latinos. And so not only that, but in a couple of these races, I guess in all of these three new districts in the races, there was more than one Latino running. So this is this was very, very key and new and, and fresh, you know, to see a Latino versus a Latino, which is 
a, a true sign of of uh, you know the maturity or I guess the growth and the development that the Latino community has seen in the last decade or so. I should note that two Brazilian Americans were also elected in if to the state house, one in Framingham, also a new yeah. uh, minority majority district, and in Brockton. And these two women are immigrants, and so it, we're now going to see three, a total of three Brazilian Americans in the state. So as you know, Cali and Julio too, Massachusetts is home to many, many Brazilians. I think it's mm. one, it, it is one of the states that has more Brazilians. And, and also, as you know, that there's a, a lot of controversy as to how do we label Brazilians? Are they Latino? They're not right. Hispanic. Like what is it? So it's, it, it was always, it's always controversial and complex, the issue of identity, but, but it's also, it's also remarkable that we, that, that there's going to be a, an, an increased number of Brazilian Americans elected to the state house, definitely making the state house much more representative of the population and the changes, you know, reflective of the cha- demographic changes that we've seen in the last 10 years. So Julio, are you excited or you're always a little bit cynical about these things? No, I, uh, why, why do I carry the cynical like label? No, this is really positive development for uh, the Commonwealth. And I do think Marcelo is absolutely right. You know, you have to be intentional with these redistricting uh, changes and you know, demographics do not lie. Um, this state has becoming more and more Latino, more and more Hispanic. And I'm all for Brazilians being part of the family. <laughs> uh, but again, the bigger issue for me is where are the local Massachusetts headlines outside of like Marcela's columns and, you know, the the Latinx um, advocacy groups that are behind this, you know, that, that have that have talked about this. It'd be nice to see it on front pages and at the top of local news and, you know, right. as opposed to. Uh, you know, the recent events that happened in, in Martha's Vineyard, how it was like, you know, the migrants are coming in a plane uh, from San Antonio. And I think, you know, we need more voices like Marcella in local Boston media because this is not trending backwards. This is actually pushing forwards. And I'm and, and I'm super excited about that. So I'm not that cynical, Callie. <laughs> OK, just checking. Um, I, I just to put a button on this, I just wondered if because it's the, one of the first things I noticed be, before Marcella's column. And I wonder if just people are not paying attention. Yeah, yeah. Well, Kali, yeah. I think I think you're onto something because yeah. I think this this uh, this number caught a lot of people by surprise. I'm not I'm not going to lie. I did not think it was going to be this this um, th- this big number. I mean, now you're talking about 13, like we basically doubled. It was only mm-hmm. seven yeah, exactly. or six exactly. Latino candidates. The numbers, like Julio was saying, don't lie. So now you have a voting block and it happened like almost, I mean, it didn't happen overnight, but the change definitely was pushed by the redistricting process. And I think that that was, that was very intentional and, and, and it's just, I mean, everybody knows that that is one way that you remove areas to, for the candidates to, to run and to get elected. And so this is proof that of course it, it matters. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Julio Ricardo Varela of Futuro Media Group and Marcela Garcia of the Boston Globe. We're talking about the latest Latinx news you may have missed. So I want to tie this to national concerns, because when we start talking about demographics and political power, you know, you know, the two of you, we've talked about this a lot, but before I get you to weigh in on it, I want to just play this clip from the world's Marco Werman, 
uh, talking about what happens every 30 seconds, which has an impact um, on Latinos becoming the second largest voting population uh, behind whites. If you're a regular listener, you know that all this year we're following the stories of young Latino voters across the United States. Our coverage is centered on a simple reality. Every 30 seconds, a young Latino turns 18 and is eligible to vote. So there you got it. Now you want to talk about a voting block. (laughs) Um, And so when we look across the country and think about a couple of things, first, there is now even more concerted effort on the part of the GOP to win over Latinos for the midterms most immediately. Um, and uh, and you have this new voting, not new, but recognized, okay, voting block. Um, so what, what do you think? Uh, I'll let you start, Julio. I'm going to bring some new Pew data that came out earlier um, in the week, like, you know, this past week. Um, but they had a lot of findings, and two of the ones that really jumped out me and I'm actually just going to quote them because you know I am the reporter here. Um, Latino registered voters identify with or lean toward the Democratic Party over the Republican Party by a nearly two to one margin. That's sixty four percent versus thirty three percent. With Latino Party identification shifting little over the past few years. So I know there's been a lot of tension about like oh the shift to Republicans and everything, but guess what? It's always been a third. With Latinos, it's been a third when Ronald Reagan was around. It probably bumped up to 40% when George George uh, W. Bush was president. Mm-hmm. But this is the other interesting thing about this. Um, they kind of buried the lead in this one. They were kind of like, Latinos, you know, think the Democrats are great. And then, like, if you go through the findings, there's just, and I'm literally quoting from, from the press release from Pew, um, Overall, 77% of Latino registered voters are dissatisfied with the way things are going in the country, and 54% disapprove of the way Joe Biden is handling his job as president. So I do think we're still in this sort of Latinos as persuadable voters. And there was also recent data coming out of Texas through Telemundo with Beto O'Rourke and Greg Abbott in the Mm -hmm. governor's race that said that the number of Latinos, especially younger Latinos who are claiming it being political independence continues to grow. So when you have a younger population that has been historically underserved, I do think that there's so much vote out there for candidates to to win over. I just want to quote back to you, Marcella. Last time we had this conversation, which was a while ago, because we three haven't been together, you said they're going to hold their nose and go for the Democrats, but I'm not sure what's happening after that. <laughs> That's my quote back to you. That's what you said, wow. Marcella. I did? Yes, I did? Yes, you did. Okay. Which, which, state, which state, Your Honor, was this? <laughs> <laughs> that was years ago when we were talking about the supp- supposed shift. And that's yeah. your quote. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think the shift is real, obviously, but it's it's more about, and, and it's true that Latino Latino voters, because remember, we're talking about Latino voters. We're not talking about the Latino vote. Latino voters are the new swing voters, and so they are perhaps they're super persuadable, and it it all comes down. And the re, the reason why that's important, obviously, is because it all comes down to party investment. And yes, they lean re- Democratic, and they may end up voting. Democrat, but at the end of the day, the party that makes the best outreach, the most consistent investment, the party that's there, it's going to win Latino voters over. We we do know, though, that the Democrats 
historically, like Julio said to me, you know, last week, um, you know, we've always been a sideshow to to Democrats. Latinos have been, and, and I'm quoting Julio here. <laughs> yeah, I'm not denying that quote. I am not denying that quote, Counselor. It's true. The Democratic Party needs to shift their mentality and say, no, we still we still have to invest. We still have to convince them. We still have to have a message, and we still have to go out and, and, and encourage them to vote for us. We have to give them a reason to come out. Yes, yes. So let me go back to let me go back to local and add these two things and ask you both how that impacts the vote here, um, and that has to do with uh, the ballot question. Well, you know, we thought this was settled now after years. Driver's mm -hmm. license for um, uh, undocumented folks had been passed. Groups sprung up and said, "No, we still don't like it, and we're going to put it before all of the voters of Massachusetts, so it's on the ballot." And that's been controversial and, and divisive, to say the least. And then um, most recently, the deposit by uh, Ron DeSantos of human beings on Martha's Vineyard to make his point about uh, the southern border and feeling overwhelmed and sanctuary states are not doing their part to uh, understand uh, how big a problem uh, immigration is or illegal immigration is as far as he is concerned. So from the two of you, how do those two events um, impact the vote in Massachusetts as you see it? The place where this ballot question came from is we need an animating issue to bring people out to vote for Jeff Deal, for a governor. And what is the best or easiest way to rile up people you know, to, to come out and vote? Well, let's do a ballot question about this right. new law. And we're right. talking about a minority, this isn't, you know, it's a minority of people. Of course, it's, it's very vocal. They're super organized. They have money behind. They got the signatures. Now it's a ballot question. And it comes down to, you know, what is ballot questions are about, you know, these campaigns, they're about organizing. They're about right. money. And so bringing the, the, the Martha's Vineyard migrants here, I, I honestly don't see... <laughs> If it hadn't happened, let's just do this thought exercise. If this hadn't happened, if the, if the buses hadn't arrived in Martha's Vineyard, you know, the, again, this, this segment of the population is already very animated against, you know, the, this was just another, you know, in their mind, confirmation mm -hmm. of what they already believe in. You know, they're, they're, they're not the people who, who need to be persuaded. They already are, um, you know, they already bought into this, this anti-immigrant sentiment. Correct. I, I am a little disappointed, though, that I, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but, you know, the the, the booklet of information with the ballot oh, questions. Yeah, I, I got it. Yeah, the it voters doesn't guide. Have, yeah, it doesn't have question four because of the of the um, deadlines. And I'm yeah. hoping that the secretary of state is going to do an addendum because this is a question that people need to be really informed. Uh, on. Yes, they do. Yeah. Yeah. Julio, give me, give me your um, brief response to it. What do you think? No, I, I think with the sense that you have very strong Democratic candidates at the top of the ballot, you know, it seems like it's going to be Mara Healy's like gubernatorial coronation. I, I think it I think it's just going to people are just going to vote down the ballot. And I absolutely agree with Marcella. Um, I would be very surprised. That question for like if if like the extreme right won that one, just because I just think it's an here in, in the state, it's just kind of been a non-issue. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, you know, I, I don't want to sound, you know, I'm going to sound practical, like put everything aside. 
it's it's a pocketbook it's a pocketbook issue. And if you just tell anyone like, hey, you're gonna save on your auto insurance in Massachusetts, people be like, all right, like that makes sense. I mean, so I I think like it's just typical of you know the Republican Party trying to make inroads into Massachusetts. You know, deals got to do everything's got to do to play into the fear mongering. Um, you know, even with the Martha's Vineyard situation. You know, this is, you know, they're just going to take advantage of that. And Marcel is absolutely right. They're just going to get the small minority of people who are going to agree that, you know, the state's being overrun by black and brown immigrants, blah, blah, blah. And we're going to speak Spanish and Portuguese and Asian Creole. And we're never going to, you know, we're going to be completely different. And like, there's plenty of people in Massachusetts that's, who are saying like, yeah, bring it on. We love it. I would be surprised. I would be surprised with this question, like, actually repealed whatever has already been done. Um, but who knows? All right, I'm gonna to switch topics to Puerto Rico. Um, still trying to recover. My question to both of you is that President Biden, unlike um, his predecessor, came out right away and said, we are pledging solid 100% support. Um, and, you know, for I think for a month for sure. And then I don't know what happens after that. Uh, but as, as, I made the point earlier. Yeah, what happened recently is is on top of the still not recovery from Maria five years ago. So just want to get your weigh in on on the situation. Oh yeah, I mean I've talked to a lot of people uh, in Puerto Rico the last couple of weeks, and and the general mood is anger and frustration and being fed up with um, local government officials. Um, the relationship between the United States and Puerto Rico, it, it is a colonial relationship. And I know that the Boston Globe editorial board uh, was talking about, you know, the fact that non-U.S. ships can't deliver diesel to Puerto Rico. And there's this, you know, antiquated law called the Jones Act that really says that only U.S. ships with U.S. flags can deliver goods to Puerto Rico. And you have to do waivers and it's always harder. It's always harder when you're a colony, right? But yep. what's but what's what's so obvious, because I have had several people tell me, and I, I'm talking like journalists and people on the ground, that nothing has changed since Hurricane Maria. And one of the biggest reasons is has to do with how federal aid is distributed in Puerto Rico or how FEMA has put these immense like bureaucratic hurdles like language issues like you got to prove that you have damage or we're not going to give you the money like the biggest thing about the power grid which is which has been problematic over the years in puerto rico i'm not going to lie about it but basically the 13 billion dollars that puerto rico gets they still have to build a new power grid before they get reimbursed like who does uh, that it's like uh, it's like yeah we're going to give you the money but you got to build it first i'm like where else like where, like you know, what's happening in Florida right now with you know Hurricane Ian or going through the South? Like you see, you know, in the end, the American consciousness is always going to be like, oh, Florida, that's part of us. Puerto Rico is still seen as like an other. I mean, there was a question in the morning console poll uh, earlier this week saying like, do you think Americans should provide federal support to Puerto Rico? Like the fact that you're asking the question. And 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 it's like yes, most people think that you have to give federal support to Puerto Rico after a hurricane, but that's it's like so aggravating. Oh my why God. are you asking the question? Like that's not that's just, that don't like it's a given. You know what I'm saying? But that is where we're at, and 
yeah, I mean, the response has been better uh, locally. Joe, Joe Biden has been more responsive, but it did still take a week to like get this ship with diesel, get a waiver. Yeah, and, they they, and, like, they, you they know have I mean? to be begged. They have to be begged. And I was very disappointed. I, I don't want to say that Trump was faster, but I because I, I don't know and I don't want to miss speak, but I, I was very disappointed with how much he had to be pressured to waive the Jones Act, which by the way, he was in favor of when he was running for president. He said he supported it, supported keeping the Jones Act. And and, and you're right, it keeps it keeps Puerto Rico um you know on on, on a you know there's its citizens the second class status. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Julio Ricardo Varela of Futura Media Group and Marcela Garcia of the Boston Globe. We're talking about the latest Latinx news you may have missed. Here's something else I need to have your voices on, and that's Hispanic Heritage Month. And before <laughs> you respond, I want you to—I want to just lay the table for our listeners. So here is by the numbers, and ABC examines the history behind Hispanic Heritage Month. Here's Hispanic Heritage Month by the numbers. It was 1968 when President Lyndon B. Johnson first proclaimed National Hispanic Heritage Week, honoring a wide group of Americans from Spanish-speaking countries for their contributions to culture, business, science, and on the battlefield. 20 years later, in 1988, President Ronald Reagan expanded the recognition from one week to one month. Hispanic Heritage Month begins on September 15th, the independence anniversary of five countries, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. All right, you get to weigh in first, Marcella, since you put your thoughts, uh, yeah. so to speak, on paper yeah. and in cyberspace. I it's funny because I, you know, I've been here for 22 years, and and of course, when you've been an immigrant in, in a foreign country so such a long time, you you your views obviously tend to shift, and and I I just found myself thinking this year wow, I don't hate Hispanic Heritage Month so much. What happened? And so I called Julio to say <laughs> if it was True just- story. True story, true I literally said, I need to interview Julio. I'm struggling. I, I'm wrestling with this. Why <laughs> Why don't I hate Hispanic Heritage Month? Why don't I? I used to be more militant about it. And he was like, yes, yes. And Julio, <laughs> Julio validated my feelings. And he said, I've been feeling the same way. And, and yeah. so like I wrote in my column, I mean, call it, pragmatism or or surrender right resignation like okay here it is it's not going anywhere well how can we and so ultimately the point the place where I landed was you know it's an opportunity to elevate Hispanic contribution Hispanic voices Hispanic everything I mean why am I going to be so opposed to that you can do two things I wrote this in the column you know these two things do not have to be mutually exclusive you can still hold people accountable politicians you can hold brands accountable for their you know, lack of cultural sensitivity around how they celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month, while at the same time celebrating Hispanic contributions to, to this that's country. Right. Like, and, and so I guess that's, you know, call, maybe it's a more nuanced position, but but I just find myself going, you know, and buying all these things in Target about Hispanic Heritage <laughs> Month. After I wrote the column, I, I have to say, I, because I asked Julio, you know, yeah. what are some examples of of good brands or you know politicians that have done this 
you know, the right way. And, and Julio was like, Target. And I'm like, yes, Target. I haven't seen, I haven't been to Target. I went on their website and I bought $50 worth of Latino heritage products and I cannot <laughs> wait to have them. So, you know, it's, it, it is, it, it is obviously corporate America. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's consumerism, all that, but like, I love having, you know, I, I love showing his Hispanic pride and, and, and honoring the culture with, uh, you know, with a t-shirt that has Spanish on it. Of course I want, I, you know, I like that. I, I, I'm not going to lie. Right. And so, so, but, but at the same time, I am going to point out or, or I'm going to support efforts that single out brands or politicians for doing the bare minimum or, or not including, not being inclusive when they celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month, because there's so many, so many corporations that do not have a single Latino employee, and yet they still want to do a Latino Hispanic Heritage Month for, for, you know, for the purposes of let's sell more products. I, well, you know, it's funny. I agree with Marcella in a, a, a lot of ways, and it is a true story. And, and I was, I was like saying, yeah, you're right, you're right. But one of the biggest uh, culprits this time around is the NFL. Did you guys interesting, see this? Did you see this? Yeah. Right, so, so they put, you know, it says NFL. And what they did is that they, they put the Enya, right? You know, the little squiggly line over the N and they put like, you know, NFL, yeah. right? And it's like, for oh. la cultura, for the culture. And, and like, I'm sorry. Here's the thing. Latinos and Latinas, if you look at the demographics of American football, like we're all in. There are, That's deep right. histor there are deep historical cultural roots with some of the most storied franchises in the NFL, like the Oakland Raiders, the Los Angeles Rams, the Dallas Cowboys. You know, there's, you know, you go to Arizona and Phoenix that, you know, Latino, you know, I know plenty of like Mexican-Americans and Chicanos who are like Raider fans and Rams fans and Cowboy fans. Right. And they miss this opportunity to, to kind of look at the historical and cultural roots of like fandom with Latinos and Latinas in the NFL. Instead, they probably spent so much money on some campaign yeah. to put a little squiggly line over an N, and no one says NFL. You know what I'm saying? It's like, <laughs> please. It's so silly. It's so silly. I don't know who did this campaign, but come on. Like, you would have, yeah. I mean, take like, because I'm a, I'm an American football fan. I'm a sports fan. Mm -hmm. And I've, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm, you know, and I'm, I'm, Sadly, I root for the Patriots now, you know, the run's over, but it's okay, <laughs> you know, but, but that's what I mean is that they miss out on opportunities. Whereas as opposed to major league baseball, that right. did an amazing, amazing, like true on Roberto Clemente day, which was September, like at the start of Hispanic heritage month, did an amazing presentation presenting how much Clemente represents sort of like the Latin ball player and how how there are roots in baseball. And and there's this beautiful artwork of Clemente with all these words of who he represents. There's a great Major League Baseball original about him. And I'm like, that's how you do it right. So in Hispanic Heritage Month, you know, Major League Baseball wins. And yet FL loses. Oh, that I is mean, so Well, you, you have said it. I just want to ask you both a question that I asked actually Erica Sanchez who is um, my author in the yeah. show with you so I'll say to the two of you how does it feel to be a role model I mean I don't see myself as a role model this is this is bad because that means <laughs> that I haven't been a role model <laughs> to people that probably need to no I mean it's funny Callie because uh, I mean I I swear to God this isn't false modesty I just I just 
want to do the job and 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 it's sad it's yeah. sad that that i have to see myself or, or that i'm you know the only one in the room and that, yeah. you know yeah. it's, it's just it's sad because ultimately that's not how it should be i don't want to always have to write about latino issues but if i don't then who is going to write about it and of course i'm naturally interested in in immigration issues in latino issues political power all of that as a journalist but sometimes yeah. i also want to write about dogs you know that have nothing to do with my latino identity well they it, it does because my dogs are bicultural and bilingual. yeah well, but <laughs> you know that's I, i'm yeah. gonna make sure your dog doesn't hear that no, no. I mean, no. That's that's right. That's right. That's right. But but you know, the the point is like it's just ultimately it if it, it is a huge responsibility. But it, ultimately, it's just it's kind of depressing. I mean, I'm sorry to end on such a bad, on such oh, a depressing. I'll take the baton, Marcella. I'll take yes, the baton from you. Yeah, yes, I mean, yes. Lift us I up. I mean, Callie. <laughs> uh, you know, I had the pleasure of seeing you at Las Vegas for the NABJ, the National Association of Black Journalists, National Association of Hispanic Journalists Convention. Uh, it was in Las Vegas. I hope it's never in Las Vegas ever again. <laughs> because, but but Callie and I, I got to see Callie and I got to see a lot of great people that I hadn't seen uh, since the pandemic. And what was super fascinating was seeing young journalists come up to um, myself and my senior editor, uh, Hector Lizanamo, talking about like, oh, wow, Latino Rebels. Like, that was one of the first digital outlets I read as a young journalist. And and I am, and and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't hit me sometimes. Mm -hmm. It's something that I just created because I was just like frustrated and I was, it's like, oh, I need to do something. I need, I, I you know, technology's here. I'm gonna use my voice as a bilingual, bicultural person, blah, blah, blah. 12 years later, I'm like, Oh wow! Like we are, we've we've made an impact in the community, and the fact that you know Marcel is writing for the Globe and then calls me up about like you've been talking about this forever, so I'm going to interview you, Varela. <laughs> um, but I do think it, it it leads to what I'm okay with, as and I agree with Marcella. Like sometimes I just want to like write about punk music and and take my Latinidad and just put it in a you know put it away for a little bit, you know, but. I'm also really proud of the fact that we have been able to elevate things. And so I'm really proud of mm -hmm. it. And I'm really yes. proud of the next wave of journalists who I'm, I'm very close, like a lot of young journalists. I'm like, I've become, you know, I've become like a Kelly Crossley, like, oh, please. <laughs> like people coming to me with advice and like, what am I going to do? You know, but you know, I, I like being sort of this mentor now. That's the role I take. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, there That's you go. Awesome. Well, see, that's an uplifting note to end on. And I always enjoy talking to both of you. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Callie. <laughs> Julio Ricardo Varela is president of Futuro Media Group, co-host of the In the Thick podcast, founder of Latino Rebels, and an MSNBC opinion columnist. Marcella Garcia is an opinion columnist and associate editor at the Boston Globe. Coming up, Erica Sanchez's first novel, I'm Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter, was a critically acclaimed bestseller. Now the poet author has followed up with her new memoir. In Crying in the Bathroom, this proud Mexican-American writer chronicles her indirect path to claiming her talent and managing her mental health. We're celebrating Hispanic Heritage Month with our October selection for Bookmark, the Under the Radar Book Club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Thank you.
I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap, that's Creole for something extra. Erica Sanchez cries a lot in her new book, a memoir appropriately titled Crying in the Bathroom. And as readers will discover in her very personal essays, she has a lot to cry about. In a narrative that is at turns gut-wrenching, poignant, and funny, Erica reveals pivotal moments of her life which shaped her artistry and activism. Her unique voice shouts from the pages in this no-holes-barred, clutch-your-pearls read. Erica Sanchez is a Mexican-American poet, novelist, and essayist. She is the author of the poetry collection, Lessons on Expulsion, and of the best-selling young adult novel, I Am Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter, which was a finalist for the 2017 National Book Award for Young People's Literature. Erica Sanchez is a professor at DePaul University, where she teaches writing and Latinx literature. And author Erica Sanchez joins me now from Chicago. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be here. Well, I'm so glad to have you. Um, Your book is amazing on so many levels. We should say that um, it's a series of essays, and it is a memoir. And so I'm just curious about um, why you decided that you would write your memoir this way in the series of essays. You know, I really didn't decide that. (laughs) (laughs) I I wrote this um, with the intention of creating a collection of essays because that's what was really speaking to me. And then as, you know, as I wrote, it seemed to have some sort of arc, Um, but I, I didn't still believe that it was a memoir until my publisher suggested it. And I do think it works as both. Um, and, and I think that that's part of what I, I really am proud of in this collection because um, each essay stands on its own, but it also, it, it makes up an overarching narrative. Mm. Maybe not traditional, but, but still. Well, one of the narratives uh, running through the book are, of course, your coping with mental illness. And um, it was, it's, it's, well, first of all, I should say to my listeners that the book is very conversational, so it feels as though you're just sort of chatting with me, telling me about all the stuff that happens. And in some ways, um, while reading about how tough it was for you to just figure out what was going on, and then all those years of being misdiagnosed just really hit you um, as a reader because it is so conversational. Talk a little bit about um, why the book is really called Crying in the Bathroom. Yeah, the title in some ways is supposed to be both sad and funny, which uh, makes sense when you read the book. There are a lot of moments of sadness, but there are also moments where, you know, I can't control my laughter and I have to, you know, escort myself out to a bathroom. And so, um, you know, I wanted to really highlight the the despair that I felt uh, throughout. And, um, you know, I, I cried in bathrooms at workplaces, at school. <laughs> Crying for me was a release of the emotions that I could not contain any longer. And so my mental illness has always made my life very, very complicated and difficult. And um, there have been times where I just, I had to just cry it out in a bathroom. And um, I think a lot of women in particular can relate to this, this act. Oh, absolutely. Um, But especially for me, as I said, just um, going along with you as you um, 
let us in on the fact that it was so puzzling to you. It's not like you woke up one morning and said, okay, this is what's going on, and I know, and and now I'm going to go out here and address it. I mean, you spent a lot of time trying to figure out what is going on, and it just was so poignant, um, those stories. It's so frustrating when you don't have, you know, the, the language for what is happening to you, and that's the first part of healing is to name what is happening, and um, often we just don't have the tools necessary to be able to do that. And so I think for a long time, I was looking and looking and looking and I, I just couldn't figure it out. And, you know, it took a lot of many twists and turns to finally understand what it was that was happening to me. Mm. Um, I wonder if you'd read from page 90, um, should give us a sense of what we're talking about. My depression always made happiness a fickle and fleeting son of a bitch. It didn't have a name or shape then, was something I couldn't understand or articulate, a container for my grief. All I knew was that there was a sadness that hovered over me like a sticky cloud, made it hard to live. I was able to pinpoint specific moments when I believed I was happy, but it never lasted for extended periods of time. I found most of my solace in reading writing and music. Happiness was abnormal, something worthy of applause and celebration. If I was in a good mood for longer than a few hours, it was almost astonishing. I was angry at being alive, at having to exist in human form. I wanted to disappear. I began thinking of suicide when I was about 13. Sometimes I take my busted boombox in the bathroom to drown out the sound of my crying as I showered. So that's overarching through many of your essays because it was just with you and you're trying to figure out what's going on. But as we said earlier, and you mentioned it to, uh, yourself, um, there's a lot of humor in this book. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you, I mean, people are going to say, really? I mean, that is not giving me a, a hint of that, but there actually is. Promise. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you pride yourself on, on being a funny person. Um, talk about just uh, humor in your life and what it means to you and how it shows up on the pages here in this, in this memoir. Early on, I realized that comedy felt very freeing to me. And I, I felt that it was really enticing because it was so transgressive. And um, especially as a woman, that seemed to be very taboo. And so I would watch these female comedians who stand up and I, I was just in awe of how um, irreverent they were. And also just like growing up in a Mexican household, everyone makes fun of everyone all the time. And that's just how it is. And so my brothers and I have developed this very ridiculous sort of um, dynamic between us where we just, you know, we tease and we joke. And it, it's, it's a really wonderful way, I think, to cope with being alive. There's so much to really stress over. There's a lot to worry over. But when you can laugh about it, then it makes it less scary. And so um, I, I just developed this sort of um, sense of humor in order to, to survive my childhood and then also to, to survive my adulthood because you know a lot of my circumstances were really difficult. And so I, I had to find 
the the comedic value in it or else it felt like you know it, it was just going to crush me mm, mm. um but you remind us all the way through that about um just how you see through the lens of humor on some of these things that maybe might not seem funny to people but they are in the way that you put them i mean you, you got a lot of uh stuff that uh people would imagine you would write about like bad dates and Really, really <laughs> bad boyfriends, Erica. I was screaming at the page, like, no, no, no. there is. <laughs> no, oh, no, no not him. I'm screaming while I'm oh. reading about you. <laughs> well, your, thank you. <laughs> your bad boyfriend. And because you come across as someone so uh, confident about herself, uh, you know, it's, it's really interesting that we all can fall into just um, doing stuff we know is not good for us, but... But there you have it. And, and you were able to both write about it and make some of it quite funny at the time. At the same time, while some of us were reading it and screaming, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> now, you were talking about um, the humor being a part of growing up in a Mexican household. You are the daughter of Mexican immigrants um, in Chicago. How did that shape so much, and it did, um, in what you write about uh, of your life? Because you are very clear, you make it very clear throughout the book that this is extremely important for readers to understand um, as we uh, progress through the essays. I know so many people who, like me, you know, grew up with uh, parents who were immigrants who crossed the border and you know, lived in poverty, struggled, all of that. So for me, it's like a, a, a common story, but for I think the rest of the world, it really isn't, you know? Um, we're not really seen um, in, in our full humanity most of the time. And so, um, you know, growing up, I was very aware of, of poverty. I was very aware of inequality um, and, I feel like that really shaped my worldview. I, I have always felt like it was important to stand up for people who didn't have rights. And so, uh, you know, being a, an immigrant, a child of an immigrant, um, you you develop a sort of sensibility about the world because you're so, you're like you're often forced to be responsible for a lot of things in your household, like translating and, you know, communicating with anybody. Um, that kind of experience made me feel um, in some ways very capable. Um, but also, you know, I felt very angry by how my parents were treated and, and how they continue to be treated in this country. Mm. Why don't you read from page 57? Back to the motherland. I come from a long line of peasants. We are a hardy desert people, scrappy I'm reminded of this every time I return to Northern Mexico and study the Sierra Madre landscape. The land does not yield or forgive. According to colonial Spanish accounts, the climate in this region was so extreme that unprotected horses were susceptible to freezing in the winter. The summer months brought a heat so intense that Spaniards claimed it rivaled Africa's. I've asked my family again and again about the indigenous civilization we descend from, but no one could give me a definite answer. 
we are poor rural Mexicans and thus muddled beyond simple classification. There is a great, great, great grandfather or some who is Spanish, but that's all I've been able to unearth. The best I can do is assume that based on where my family hails from, part of our ancestry is Tepehuan Indian. I want to believe this because the Tepehuanes were fierce. Tired of overwork and mistreatment, they revolted against the Spanish in 1616 in an uprising that the colonizers never saw coming. Andres Perez de Rivas, a Jesuit historian and contemporary of the time described it as one of the greatest outbreaks of disorder, upheaval and destruction that had been seen in New Spain since the conquest. They fought the Spanish for four brutal years. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm speaking with Erica Sanchez, whose latest book is Crying in the Bathroom. It's our October selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar book club. So let's address the language. <laughs> Some reviewers have have uh, uh, called your language raunchy. <laughs> Some, have yeah. said, Some have said raw. How do you describe your language? I describe it very Cicero, Illinois. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Say more. Say more about that. I mean, I just grew up in an environment where people talked a lot of Oh, I just swore. Sorry. (laughs) Um, You know, I I, I grew up with two brothers and there's a lot of just like ridiculous banter between us. Um, You know, when you grew up in like the hood, as they call it, um, that's just normal. And in fact, the text um, of Crying in the Bathroom is such a mix of, you know, what I learned in academia and, uh, you know, all this highfalutin crap. And then also this um, very like street culture. And I think that, you know, as a woman, you're not supposed to be vulgar, um, according to many, but, you know, I don't really care. And, and, you know, when I first saw Janine Garofalo do her stand up, I was like, I want to be like her, like, I want to talk crap. Um, and she was an inspiration and she continues to be. And I, I think that it's okay for, for women to express themselves in this way. Cause you know, why is it, why is it low class? Why is it wrong? I don't I think it. I didn't say it was low cap class. I'm <laughs> no, just saying no, some you. people. Yeah. Some I'm talking people. about the reviewers. <laughs> yes, yes. It's so interesting because what happens generally is that even uh people who have that as an experience in their life always clean it up when they write a book. So uh, what you decided to do is I'm going to have the conversation that I would normally have with anybody and I'm going to put it on the page. And that's why I think it's a little bit for most people it's like, "Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm not expecting it." <laughs> different for sure but I think it's you know it's me I I, I wanted to sound like myself and in a memoir I would suggest that you ought to do that (laughs) yeah now as you go along in your essays you take some time to begin uh to pay attention to sort of a number of of contextual issues that have to do with your life about you know race and and bias and um and I was interested in your whole take on colorism as you're fair-skinned, and you talked about a lot in the book about how, you know, people 
mistake you for others. In fact, I want you to, to read an excerpt from the book about that. And then on the other side of that, we'll, we'll talk more about it on page 116. I've been confused for Greek, Italian, Middle Eastern, Indian, and all kinds of Latin American. On very rare occasions, to my chagrin, people even think I'm some kind of white. This seems silly to me given my big nose and lips, but alas. My name is Sanchez, I tell them frantically, Sanchez. My skin is a light to medium brown, the color of a very milky coffee, not quite caramel with strong yellow undertones. I can't wear any shade of orange or yellow without looking diseased. At school, many girls of my complexion insisted on being blondes, which I found to be aesthetically jarring. I once wore a blonde wig for Halloween, David Bowie in Labyrinth, and though I rocked it, I also looked jaundiced. My nose is large and slightly upturned. A man I once dated described it as proud. The faint bump on the bridge gives it an aquiline quality, one that I likely inherited from my indigenous ancestors. My lips are probably the most noticeable thing about me. Really, my face is half mouth. During an interview once, a photographer asked me to smile less for my portrait, which made me laugh. My ex-husband told me he didn't like making out with me because my mouth was, quote, too big. And it felt like it was engulfing his face. Strangely, his was the first and only complaint I ever received about that. I have also been blessed with beautiful Mexican hair. It's medium brown and people often comment on how thick and shiny it is. And I'm embarrassed to admit how much I enjoy these compliments. After all, I didn't do anything to deserve it. Una bendición de pelo, my mother used to say as she brushed it into a tight ponytail. My light brown color and my relatively slim and able body allow me the privilege of blending into many spaces. I know I'm able to move through the world in ways that other people of color are not. My presence isn't always questioned and my body isn't automatically feared. So um, you could obviously write your whole memoir and not address some of these uh, issues. I thought it was interesting that um, you spent a fair amount of time pointing the, pointing out stuff like this in your book, um, just to remind people about um, how they can make judgments from just a glance and they don't really know what's going on. Why was this important to you to make certain that you address these issues? I think it's important to see how complex race is and 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 many times it's um really nonsensical and um and i also want wanted to acknowledge my privilege as a person who is not dark-skinned and so i i talk about my experiences with racism and and i want to um show that i understand that the racism that i experience is different from the racism that someone else might Mm. Something else you you did that um, I have ended up talking with other authors of color who uh, speak a different language um, is that they are now very freely embedding the language into the narrative with no explanation. In other words, it's yep. been, you know, and <laughs> and that's just been a fascinating thing for me to read and watch. It's contextual, so you can kind of figure it out or you can look it up, uh, but. You know, there's no explanation within the body of the of the uh, of the book. Why for you was this important? I wanted to 
be my truest self in this book. And that meant, you know, speaking slash writing in, in the way that I do. And that is with Spanish very much embedded within my English. And um, I think that's just the experience for so many of us who grow up, um, you know, speaking another language is that you mix them up, you you feel like both are equally important to you. And so, um, and, and also it's it's important, I think, not to, to accommodate everybody all the time and, and to show that this is a valid way of being, um, that you can look it up if you feel like it, you could try to like, you know, understand the context clues. Ultimately, when I write, I, I think about like, what, what would a, a, a Mexican American woman think, you know, mm, um, mm. that's, that's my imagined audience for the most part. And, uh, and, and, you know, women of color as well, but like when, when I write Spanish, I'm, I'm speaking to them. I'm speaking to, to people who, who have grown up in this fashion being bilingual. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, um, as you've said, there's an arc to this book in the essays, and um, at the end, you're in a very, very good place. Um, Nuke found a great guy, not some of the <laughs> bad boyfriends of all. I hope you were proud of me at the end. <laughs> I was. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you uh, have kids and seem to be in a really good place. Um, what do you want people to take away from the book? You know, I, I really want young women in particular to understand that you don't have to be perfect you can be flawed you can make mistakes you can have you know all these failures in your life and still come out and be happy you know that it just because you 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 make a mistake it doesn't mean that your life is over that uh, just because you have a mental Ill illness doesn't mean that you're never going to be happy that there are ways to fight for the life that we believe we deserve. And so um, I, I want it to be, you know, I don't want to say inspirational because that sounds corny, but I, I want young women to like just em envision a, a better life for themselves if, if that's something that they, they want and, and, to, and to believe that it can happen. Mm. This is Hispanic Heritage um, Month. And I was thinking to myself as you were, um, throughout your book and in this conversation saying who you looked up to um, as you were sort of struggling to make it to the, the happy ending or the happier ending, if we can say. So what does it feel like to be looked up to as the role model? You know, it's really sweet. I really um, appreciate, you know, all the love that I get from, from my readers and, and my students too. I feel like um, it's a great responsibility. It's a little bit daunting um, in the fact that I know that what I say matters to people. And so I want to be very careful about what I say and how I say it. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's an amazing feeling. I, I just saw um, that my book was uh, on Penn Station on a billboard and I'm just like, just not able to compute what that even means you know it's it's such a strange amazing thing that has happened um i just i feel really grateful and i i want um young women to 
to know that it's possible to achieve their dreams. All right. Well, great book. Um, Funny. People should know. I'm emphasizing that again. (laughs) (laughs) And thank you so much for joining me, Erica. Thank you. Erica Sanchez is the author of Crying in the Bathroom. It's our October selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club, and it's available in bookstores and online now. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar. We're on the web at wgbh.org, news, Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Kelly Wessinger, with help from intern Catherine Hurley. Dave Goodman is our engineer. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. Listen again on Thursday and see you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday for a new episode. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. 